Many thanks to the selfless folks who are in the children's ministries now, watching our kids and teaching them the Bible. If you have a Bible, go ahead and point your Bible to Luke chapter 3. I'd like to say good morning to you all. I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my honor and privilege to be with you again in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 15. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, there is a uh, Bible provided for you in the pew in front of you. You're welcome to just grab that Bible, and if you are not super familiar with the Bible, Luke chapter 3 will be found on page 858 of the Black Bible. 858 and 859 is where we will be today. I'm going to read from verse 15 down to verse 22, and then ask for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll get to work, working our way through this passage, which should take us around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 3 beginning at verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all of the people were baptized... And when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. The Lord is my refuge and my strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Lord, be with us now. Send your Holy Spirit to illuminate and to help us see. Give us eyes that we may see Jesus, ears that we may hear him. For the glory of Jesus' name we ask, amen. Have you ever wondered what God was doing in eternity past? Peer with me, just for a moment, into the mysterious wonder of time before time. 
Now, admittedly, our vision will be limited, but there are some things that we can see. Jesus Christ, God the Son, God from God, is the very pleasure center of God the Father. He is the Father's infinite and undiminished, white-hot delight. Watch as the Father's delight in His Son swells with intensity to feast upon that which gives Him most pleasure. And watch as the glorious perfections of the Son rise to meet it. And watch as the Father's zeal for His joy in His Son is stirred up by and sustained by God the Holy Spirit. And watch as this goes on without recess or break for age upon age, days without number. God never growing once bored or tired or having any waning interest. This is what God has been doing forever. Delighting himself in his own perfections. As far back as you can go, and as far forward as you can go, until time is meaningless, God has been satisfying his insatiable joy in the infinite delights of his Son. You see, God did not create man or beast because he was lonely. Nor did he create, out of some insufficiency from within himself, creation of all things, past, present, or future, is an outpouring from God. An overflow of his delight in himself. It is an invitation to join him in bringing glory to, in the enjoyment of, the Son. And what we read before us today in Luke chapter 3 is the beginning of the ministry of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And as the waters of the Jordan River are rolling off his sinless face, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and a voice from heaven declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And here we have a snapshot of eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit pointing to and delighting in God the Son. This morning, dear Christian, I would invite you to come with me to these banks of this Jordan River and rest your restless soul here in contemplation. 
For here in the Father's delight in his, in his Son is the key to unlock the sole purpose of your life. Here, in the text before you, you will see the reason you were made. To join your Heavenly Father and to join with the Holy Spirit and to join with your crazy Uncle John and pointing all things to Jesus Christ at all costs. Here's the big idea this morning. Jesus is the center of all and greater than all. Point to him at all cost. Jesus is the center of all and greater than all. Point to him at all cost. Our text can be outlined like this. First, John the Baptist points to Jesus. In verses 15 to 17. Second, John the Baptist fades into the background. In verses 18 to 20. And then finally, Jesus Christ takes center stage. Which is verses 21 and 22. So that's how it's teed up this morning. Let's get to work. John the Baptist points to Jesus. Let's have a look again at verses 15. To 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Last Sunday we saw John the baptizer explode onto the salvation historical scene. He came out of the woods and went into the water wearing a camel skin vest and eating bugs and honey, and he came preaching. He was an Old Testament prophet, calling down the fire of heaven against the wickedness of men. John's like that crazy uncle of yours who talks a little bit too loud and scares the children. But he's intense and deeply committed to God and to the gospel. Matthew's gospel tells us that everyone was going out to see John. The whole country, as it were. And many were falling under the conviction of the Holy Spirit through his preaching, and many were being baptized. John's ministry was simply exciting. John is unlike anything they'd ever seen. For all they knew in those days were the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. These drawn-out long ramblings about the minutiae of man-made laws. And John comes onto the scene, and he's in the people's face with God's truth. And he doesn't shrink back from calling out sin in peasants or in soldiers. He doesn't shrink back from calling out sin in the religious types or in politicians. 
He's unrestrained and uncontrollable. And people are wondering, could this be the Messiah? You see, there were end-time expectations in those days that Messiah would come in the promises of God and he would cast off the restraint of the oppression of God's people. And they took this to mean that God would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. That Messiah would come and set up his kingdom and be a king and rule. And Luke says, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he Is that Christ? Is that Messiah? Can you imagine the temptation the baptizer is facing? Thousands are turning up to hear him preach. He has disciples. He has a following. His name is on everyone's lips. Politicians hear him. His sermons are trending on social media. Celebrities are attending his church and taking selfies with him. He has the fastest growing ministry in Israel. Publishers are clamoring for his books. All the conference organizers are willing to give him top billing to come to their conference. How easy it would have been for John to begin believing his own hype. And yet John answers this expectation in verse 16. Are you kidding me? I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John looked at those thousands of faces willing to make him Messiah, even king. And he said, no way. You think I'm great. You have no idea what greatness is. The people's expectation of the Messiah was far too low, and John will set them straight. He's saying, basically, the Messiah is on a completely different level than me. My ministry is to prepare for him, to point to him, never to parallel him. If we're being honest with ourselves... I suspect we wouldn't have much of an issue with seeing Jesus exalted so long as we're exalted alongside him. We don't mind Jesus receiving glory as long as we get a little of that glory for ourselves. Like we don't mind Jesus being in the limelight as long as I can kind of sneak up to the edge, get a little bit of that light for me. Later in John's ministry, his disciples notice that, well, Jesus is drawing a bigger crowd than you are, Rabbi. We got to do something about this. We got to come up with a new marketing campaign. We've got to get bigger. And John says this to his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And listen to this. 
Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This joy of John to see Christ exalted at him not exalted. His joy. Dear Christian, that's your joy too. May all of your efforts and striving be to press ever more upward on the increase of the glory of Jesus Christ in your life at all costs. And to the decrease of your own. Dear Christian, joy is when Jesus is everything and you are nothing. John goes on to give us three reasons why Jesus is greater than him. He says first that Jesus is mightier. One is coming who is mightier than I. The word means Stronger, more powerful, more able. He's so much mightier and greater, John says, that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals from his feet. Untying sandals off of a master's feet was something that was reserved for the lowest servants. The commentators say that Rabbis were allowed to ask almost anything of their students except this. They would do anything for love, but they would not do that. They have to understand that these were the days before sensible footwear. Where everyone wore sandals. And I know some of you weirdos wear sandals all summer long. It's gross. Everyone knows it's gross. But these are the days when you're walking on dirt roads. Dirt roads which are shared with animals who do what animals do on roads. And you're walking through it. And so when a wealthy person would come home, they would have all the muck on their feet and the lowest servant's job was to come in and unstrap the sandals and to wash the master's And John says, I'm so far beneath the Messiah. How can I possibly be the Messiah? I'm so far beneath him. I'm not even worthy to be his lowest servant and undo his sandals. That's the first reason. Jesus is greater. The second reason. Jesus is greater because Jesus' baptism is greater. I mean, John's baptism was great, but Jesus' baptism is far greater. John's baptism was external, dunking people in water. Jesus' baptism is internal, baptizing them in the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus' baptism is for the infilling of God the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus will do what God promised he would do in Ezekiel 38. 
He will send the Holy Spirit and give His people a new heart, remove the heart of stone from them, and give them a heart of flesh. He will put His Spirit within them and cause them to walk in His ways. John, great though he was, had no ability to change the heart. So Jesus' baptism is greater. Because his is a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. This is likely a reference to Isaiah chapter 4, where Isaiah predicted that when Messiah comes, the Lord will wash away the filth from his people. He will cleanse them by a spirit of judgment and burning. The baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit to dwell in the believer and to burn off the filth of sin and to draw them to the grace of Christ where they can be cleansed and purified for his good use. And we know that this is what John is referring to because he says next that Jesus, this Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Jesus is greater because his baptism is greater. And the third reason John gives for Jesus being greater is that Jesus is the judge. His winnowing fork is in his hand. So back in those days, they would harvest wheat, and they would tread it out, and they would put it in a big pile, and the farmer would come along, and he would throw in, he would push in his winnowing fork, and he would lift everything up into the air, toss it up into the air on a windy day. And the light, worthless shaft would be blown away by the wind, But the kernels of grain, the useful parts, which were heavier, would fall to the ground. And he would gather them up, put them in his barn, feed his animals and his family. John is saying that the life and the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is a winnowing ministry. He will separate wheat from chaff. The useful from the useless. The wheat he will gather into his barn. The chaff will be carried away by every wind of doctrine and burned with unquenchable fire. Whether you're here and you're a Christian or not a Christian, you are subject to this winnowing fork. The only question is, will you be carried away by the winds of the doctrines of men and subject to the unquenchable flame? Or will you fall to the ground in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, the just judge? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here in church today. This is just the message you need to hear. The words of Scripture, the words of the Bible are a winnowing fork. And by your hearing of these words, you are being tossed up into the air, as it were. Will you reject Christ and be carried off by the shifting winds of doctrines of men? 
to be gathered up in the end and burned with unquenchable fire? Or will you fall on your feet, confessing the risen Lord Jesus Christ and receive merciful forgiveness for your sins? Friend, I only ask that you take this to heart today. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for sinners who would trust in him. And God raised him from the dead to guarantee eternal life for them. After the service today, I invite you to talk with someone who looks like a regular and ask them how you can find the mercy of God through Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I'll be standing in the foyer on your way out. Talk with me. I'd love to hear from you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. John the Baptist points to Jesus. Next we see, in fulfillment of his own words, John the Baptist fades into the background. Let's pick up reading in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he had John locked up in prison. John preached good news to the people. Now, we've heard the preaching of John so far in this series, haven't we? Been pretty fire and brimstone, as it were. But part of preaching the good news is that you have to point to sin. Good news is not good news unless there's bad news, yes? So imagine if someone walks up to you, a stranger on the street, and they said, Good news, friend. I just found out you're not going to prison. Well, you might say to them, that's, that's not that good of news. I don't even think that's news at all. I didn't do anything worth going to prison for. You see, preaching the good news is meaningless without a clear understanding that apart from the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, we are all sinners, falling short of the glory of God and deserve that unquenchable flame. And so we must preach the full gospel, that God has given grace to sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in their place for their sin. We must point to sin. Not just societal sin. Personal sin. Yes, societal sin. But also personal sin. You see, because men will not see Christ as a Savior unless they know they need saving. And when you do, when you point out sin, personal sin, there will be resistance. Some of you have met that resistance. John felt resistance. But as long as you keep your faith personal and private, uh, you'll live a life relatively free of this persecution. I mean, no one's going to say much to you. You have your thing. I have my thing. My thing is Jesus. Your thing is Buddha, Muhammad, the Buckeyes, whatever your religion is. 
And no one's going to say much to you. Because that's the postmodern highway. You have your thing, I have my thing. You have your truth, and I have mine. But the moment that you share with your friend or your relative or your neighbor and you say, I am a sinner in need of God's grace, and you are a sinner in need of God's grace, I must be forgiven by a holy and just God. You must be forgiven by a holy and just God. You will encounter resistance. Which is what John encountered. Luke says that the old boy started in on Herod the Tetrarch. And John's getting on Herod for his immoral life choices. History records that Herod Antipas was a wicked man. His, and this is one screwed up family, Herod's family. I mean, your family tree looks like a tree. His looks like a plate of spaghetti. It is a mess. See if you can follow this. This is what John was addressing, okay? Herod the Great had sons and daughters by multiple men. Multiple women, no, not men. That would be something. So Herod the Great had sons and daughters by multiple different women. Herod Antipas was one of those sons. So was Herod Philip. was another one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod the Great had another son named Aristobulus. And Aristobulus had a daughter who he named Herodias after his dad. So Philip marries Herodias, which would have been his niece. So that's fun. And Herod Antipas is visiting Rome and he seduces his brother's wife and divorces his current wife to marry Herodias. And so she is at one time his sister-in-law and his niece and his wife. Spaghetti. And John the Baptist just says what everyone is thinking. First of all, that's gross. Second of all, that's incest. Third of all, that's adultery. And last of all, that is sin. And Herod doesn't like it. But understand that By John the Baptist calling out Herod Antipas in his sin, God is giving Herod Antipas a chance to repent, to acknowledge his sin, to own it, and to turn to God for forgiveness. He could have done that. But instead, he lashes out against John the Baptist. He seeks to shut down the voice of conviction in his life. Daryl Bach, who wrote an excellent commentary on the Gospel of Luke, said this. found this useful this week. Sin confronted but unchecked often becomes sin multiplied and magnified. Defensiveness in the face of sin is inevitably self-destructive. And unfortunately, the damage often extends beyond the one who is sinning. Close quote. Think of this next time, dear friend. One of your friends comes to you to expose sin in your life. That defensiveness in the face of sin is self-destructive. Well, John is arrested and put in prison. 
and he'll never be a free man again. The greatest man born of a woman, the forerunner to the Messiah, a man of Billy Graham fame, is arrested and fades from view in the Gospel of Luke. If you were to ask John about that, I suspect he would have said, it is as it should be. That his light should have faded so that the spotlight can shift to the man Jesus, who's the only one deserving to be in center stage. And that's where we turn as we close. Jesus Christ takes center stage. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Can you see it? And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's tremendous. Now Luke doesn't explain to us why Jesus was baptized. In fact, Luke doesn't even say that John did it. We know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we also know the Bible teaches that Jesus was without sin. So for whatever reason Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, it wasn't for his sin. And scholars have long debated the reasons why Jesus was baptized. And there are several good options, I think. But it seems to me that what we are witnessing here is the Son of God coming to do what God the Father sent Him to do, which is to offer Himself as a substitute in the place of sinners. Do you see Him in the line, the very same line of liars and thieves and fornicators and abusers stands the sinless Son of God. Already, before His ministry even begins, the Lord Jesus is being numbered among the transgressors. Luke knew Jesus' baptism was different, which is why he separates it in verse 21. Everyone was baptized, and Jesus was baptized. But notice also that Luke adds, Jesus was praying. The prayer life of the Lord Jesus is a big deal in the third gospel. And by God's grace, we will return to this theme over and over again in this series. Jesus prayed. So if if there's any reason to pray, Jesus prayed. And as God the Son is standing, praying, In the Jordan River, 
You see the whole Godhead present, don't you? Verse 22. The Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. If you've ever wondered where the Trinity appears in the Bible, you need to look no further than the River Jordan. God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. God, the Father, speaking from heaven. And God, the Son, enfleshed in prayer. Behold, the Godhead, three in one. There's an ancient heresy, which is still very alive in our day, called modalism. Modalism rejects the Trinity and states that rather God is not three persons who is one being, but rather God appears as three modes. He has his father mode, and he has his son mode, even has his spirit mode. And this is a very old heresy, but it's very alive today. In fact, this summer you'll likely have people, very nice people, knocking on your door trying to sell it to you. But this text stands resolutely against that error. For here, it doesn't take a theological degree to see that we have three persons in the triune God active, acting independent of one another and together with one another. And here we see that God is doing what he has always done, pointing to his son and delighting in him. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The father grabs a couple of Old Testament texts, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, and says that God the Son is his beloved with whom he is pleased. God the Son is the pleasure center of the Father's love, the ultimate joy of his heart. And the Father takes great delight in his Son. The Father's affirmation of His pleasure in the resplendent glory of His Son is the pinnacle of all things. This is the ultimate and final goal of everything. When we Christians say that everything is for the glory of God, this is what we mean. God the Father revealing the gloriousness of God the Son and rejoicing in it. That Christ would be all. That Christ would be the Son and everything would be planets in His orbit reflecting His glory back to Him. And do not miss this point. 
This statement of the Father's love for His Son comes before Jesus has done anything in ministry. Jesus hasn't been tempted by the devil. That's the next chapter. Jesus hasn't done any teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus hasn't healed the sick or raised the dead or went to the cross. And note, the Father's delight is in His Son for who He is. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Everything Jesus is thrills the Father. And everything Jesus does flows out of this. Everything Jesus does in obedience to his Father flows out of this, his Father's love for him. John 8, 29, Jesus says this, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus' obedience to his Father is a reciprocation of his Father's love for him, redounding back to him as a love for his Father. And every ounce of the Son's obedience and love for His Father is driven by and excited by God the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose for which you were made and saved. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.12. We who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. You don't have to wonder about the purpose of your life, nor do you have to go looking for it. It is here to praise the glory of Christ. To make much of Jesus Christ. In all of your life. And at all costs. Be that as it is. Take a hundred lifetimes to tease that out. Be that as it is. What I'm about to say next is perhaps even more glorious than that. Because if you believe it, it will change your life. And is this, the same love God the Father has for God the Son in measure and intensity is the love He has for hell-deserving sinners like you. I'm going to say that again. The same love God the Father has for God the Son, both in measure and intensity, God has for you, dear sinner. And if you don't believe me, read the Lord Jesus' own words in John 17, 23 and 26. 
Jesus said to his father, I have made known to them, his disciples, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same love. Not a lesser love. Not a different love. Not a reluctant love. Not a forced love. The same love. The same love that God the Father has for His Son. His Son secured for sinners. Saved by grace. By His death. And sealed by His Spirit. Dear Christian, having been united to Christ by faith, your inheritance is to share in the infinite delights of the Father with His Son. <laughs> when you get this, it'll change you. As it is with the Son, so it is with you. And like Jesus, your obedience to God is built on his love for you. Obedience comes from love and is for love. Obedience is not duty. It's delight. Lovers are not faithful to each other because they have to be. Because everything in them wants to be. Because the value and the worth of the object of their love drives them to obedience. And Christian, it is the same in your life. The object and the beauty of your love. This God who gave his son to save you. This God drives your obedience. His love for you. This is what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so I'll invite you to leave here today with a new lease on your life, as it is with God the Son, so it is with you. Having been united to Christ by faith, Christian, you were in Him. You were in Him while He stood in those waters and heard His Father's voice. And when his son heard those words, you heard them too. Hear them today. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Hear this today and believe it. Let's pray. Father, your love for Jesus 
which you have shared with hell-deserving sinners like us is really beyond our ability to comprehend. Will you, in your merciful grace, draw us up into it more and more this week? Make the smallness and the pettiness of our lives fade from view. And may your love in our life drive out anxiety and fear and bickering and clamoring for attention, insisting on our own way. Forgive us, Lord, for giving our affections and our anxieties to smaller things, to things beneath us. And will you forgive us for making too little of Jesus? Draw us up into yourself and give us eyes to see the bigness, the beauty, and the pleasures of the glory of Jesus. And may all else fade from view as Jesus and Jesus alone take center stage in our life. Amen. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your assurance of pardon today comes from Psalm chapter 40, verse 11, where we read, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me.